This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcasts where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Megan McGuire, Barbara Ellis, Jeremy, and Cameron Coleman. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. It really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com. 
which is this wonderful site where you can directly support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, maybe it's become part of your nightly routine, then consider being a part of making the show by going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get access to cool perks like um, an exclusive poetry feed with over 50 additional poetry episodes that uh, are not on the regular podcast feed. But no matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover of for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. I have another spooky story for you this Halloween from one of my personal favorite writers to read on the show, Edith Nesbitt. Um, This is from a short story collection that she wrote called Tales of Men and Ghosts. And tonight I'm going to be reading the first couple chapters of her story, The Bolted Door. Um, I do want to give a quick disclaimer that, again, this month, they are slightly spookier stories. They're a little bit more engaging, which means maybe less easy to fall asleep to. And in this story in particular, I just want to say that there is mention of self-harming behavior. And um, if that is something that you're sensitive to, Or maybe if you're listening with kids, then maybe go to another episode. There are over 220 episodes at this point, and if this one is a little too spooky for you, or feels a little sensitive, then go to another one so you can get a good night's rest. With that being said, I really love... Edith Wharton's writing, and this is definitely a um, suspenseful little tale, kind of a murder mystery, and has an entire chapter dedicated to an old man who was obsessed with growing melons, which was absolutely delightful to read. And uh, yeah, this story is uh, a perfect reading for this October, so... I'm happy to be reading it. Okay, that is enough of me yapping. Without further ado, Tales of Men and Ghosts by Edith Wharton. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you.
The Bolted Door Chapter 1 Hubert Grannis, pacing the length of his pleasant lamp-lit library, paused to compare his watch with the clock on the chimney-piece. Three minutes to eight. In exactly three minutes, Mr. Peter H.M., of the eminent legal firm of H.M. and Pedalo would have his punctual hand on the doorbell of the flat. It was a comfort to reflect that H.M. was so punctual. The suspense was beginning to make his host nervous, and the sound of the doorbell would be the beginning of the end. After that, there'd be no going back. By God, no going back. Grannis resumed his pacing. Each time he reached the end of the room opposite the door, he caught his reflection in the Florentine mirror above the fine old walnut credence he had picked up at Dijon. Saw himself spare, quick-moving, carefully brushed and dressed, but furrowed, gray about the temples, with a stoop which he corrected by a spasmodic straightening of the shoulders whenever a glass confronted him. A tired, middle-aged man, baffled, beaten, worn out. As he summed himself up, thus for the third or fourth time the door opened, and he turned with a thrill of relief to greet his guest. But it was only the manservant who entered, advancing silently over the mossy surface of the old turkey rock. Mr. Asham telephone, sir, to say he's unexpectedly detained and can't get here till 8.30. Grannis made a curt gesture of annoyance. It was becoming harder and harder for him to control these reflexes. He turned on his heel, tossing to the servant over his shoulder. Very good. Put off dinner. Down his spine he felt the man's injured stare. Mr. Grannis had always been so mild-spoken to his people. No doubt the odd change in his manner had already been noticed and discussed below stairs. And very likely they suspected the cause. He stood drumming on the writing table till he heard the servant go out. Then he threw himself into a chair propping his elbows on the table and resting his chin on his locked hands. Another half hour alone with it. He wondered irritably what could have detained his guest. Some professional matter, no doubt. The punctilious lawyer would have allowed nothing less to interfere with a dinner engagement, more especially since Grannis, in his note, had sat. I shall want a little business chat afterward. But what professional matter could have come up at that unprofessional hour? Perhaps some other soul in misery had called on the lawyer. And after all, Grannis's note had given no hint of his own need. No doubt, H.M. thought he merely wanted to make another change in his will since he had come into his little property ten years earlier, Grannis had been perpetually tinkering with his well. 
Suddenly, another thought pulled him up, sending a flush to his sallow temples. He remembered a word he had tossed to the lawyer some six weeks earlier at the Century Club. Yes, my play is as good as taken. I shall be calling on you to go over the contract. Those theatrical chaps are so slippery. I won't trust anybody but you to tie the knot for me. That, of course, was what H.M. would think he was wanted for. Grannis, at the idea, broke into an audible laugh, a queer stage laugh, like the cackle of a baffled villain in a melodrama. The absurdity, the unnaturalness of the sound abashed him, and he compressed his lips angrily. Would he take to soliloquy next? He lowered his arms and pulled open the upper drawer of the writing table. In the right-hand corner lay a thick manuscript, bound in paper folders and tied with a string beneath which a letter had been slipped. Next to the manuscript was a small revolver. Grannis stared a moment at these oddly associated objects. Then he took the letter from under the string and slowly began to open it. He had known he should do so from the moment his hand touched the drawer. Whenever his eye fell on that letter, some relentless force compelled him to reread it. It was dated about four weeks back, under the letterhead of the Diversity Theater. My dear Mr. Grannis, I have given the matter my best consideration for the last month then it's no use. The play won't do. I have talked it over with Miss Melrose, and you know there isn't a gamer artist on our stage, and I regret to tell you she feels just as I do about it. It isn't the poetry that scares her, or me either. We both want to do all we can to help along the poetic drama. We believe the public's ready for it, and we're willing to take a big financial risk in order to be the first to give them what they want. But we don't believe they could be made to want this. The fact is, there isn't enough drama in your play to the allowance of poetry. The thing drags all through. You've got a big idea, but it's not out of swaddling clothes. If this was your first play, I'd say, try again. But it has been just the same with all the others you've shown me. And you remember the result of The Lee Shore, where you carried all the expenses of production yourself, and we couldn't fill the theater for a week. Yet The Lee Shore was a modern problem play, much easier to swing than blank verse. It isn't as if you hadn't tried all kinds. Grannis folded the letter and put it carefully back into the envelope. Why on earth was he rereading it when he knew every phrase in it by heart, when for a month past he had seen it, night after night, stand out in letters of flame against the darkness of his sleepless lids? 
It has been just the same with all the others you've shown me. That was the way they dismissed ten years of passionate, unremitting work. Do you remember the result of the Lee Shore? Good God, as if he were likely to forget it. He relived it all now in a drowning flash. The persistent rejection of the play. His sudden resolve to put it on at his own cost. To spend $10,000 of his inheritance on testing his chance of success. The fever of preparation. The dry mouth agony of the first night. The flat fall. The stupid press. His secret rush to Europe to escape the condolence of his friends. It isn't as if you haven't tried all kinds. No, he had tried all kinds. Comedy, tragedy, prose and verse. The light curtain raiser. The short, sharp drama. The bourgeois realistic and the lyrical romantic. Finally deciding that he would no longer prostitute his talent to win popularity but would impose on the public his own theory of art in the form of five acts of blank verse. Yes, he had offered them everything, and always with the same result. Ten years of it. Ten years of dogged work and unrelieved failure. The ten years from forty to fifty, the best ten years of his life. And if one counted the years before, the silent years of dreams, assimilation, preparation, then call it half a man's lifetime. Half a man's lifetime thrown away. And what was he to do with the remaining half? Well, he had settled that, thank God. He turned and glanced anxiously at the clock. Ten minutes past eight. Only ten minutes had been consumed in that stormy rush through his whole past. And he must wait another twenty minutes for Achim. It was one of the worst symptoms of his case that, in proportion as he had grown to shrink from human company, he dreaded more and more to be alone. But why the devil was he waiting for Achim? Why didn't he cut the knot himself? Since he was so unutterably sick of the whole business, why did he have to call in an outsider to rid him of this nightmare of living? He opened the drawer again and laid his hand on the revolver. It was a small, slim ivory toy, just the instrument for a tired sufferer to give himself a hypodermic with. Grannis raised it slowly in one hand, while with the other, he felt under the thin hair at the back of his head, between ear and nape. He knew just where to place the muzzle. He had once got a young surgeon to show him. And as he found the spot and lifted the revolver to it, the inevitable phenomenon occurred. The hand that held the weapon began to shake. The tremor communicated itself to his arm. His heart gave a wild leap 
which sent up a wave of deadly nausea to his throat. He smelt the powder. He sickened at the crash of the bullet through his skull, and a sweat of fear broke out over his forehead and ran down his quivering face. He laid away the revolver with an oath, and pulling out a cologne-scented handkerchief, passed it tremendously over his brow and his temples. It was no use. He knew he could never do it in that way. His attempts at self-destruction were as futile as his snatches at fame. He couldn't make himself a real life, and he couldn't get rid of the life he had. And that was why he had sent for H.M. to help him. The lawyer, over the camembert and burgundy, began to excuse himself for his delay. I didn't like to say anything while your man was about, but the fact is, I was sent for a rather unusual matter. Oh, it's all right, said Grannis cheerfully. He was beginning to feel the usual reaction that food and company produced. It was not any recovered pleasure in life that he felt, but only a deeper withdrawal into himself. It was easier to go on automatically with the social gestures than to uncover to any human eye the abyss within him. My dear fellow, it's sacrilege to keep a dinner waiting, especially the production of an artist like yours. Mr. Achim sipped his burgundy luxuriously. But the fact is, Mrs. Ashgrove sent for me. Grannis raised his head with a quick movement of surprise. For a moment, he was shaken out of his self-absorption. Mrs. Ashgrove. Achim smiled. I thought you'd be interested. I know your passion for causes celebres. And this promises to be one. Of course, it's out of our line entirely. We never touch criminal cases. But she wanted to consult me as a friend. Ashgrove was a distant connection of my wife's. And by Joe, it is a queer case. The servant re-entered, and H.M. snapped his lips shut. Would the gentlemen have their coffee in the dining room? No, served in the library, said Grannis, rising. He led the way back to the curtained confidential room. He was really curious to hear what H.M. had to tell him. While the coffee and cigars were being served, he fidgeted about the library, glancing at his letters, the usual meaningless notes and bills, and picking up the evening paper. As he unfolded it, a headline caught his eye. Rose Melrose wants to play poetry, thinks she has found her poet. He read on with a thumping heart, found the name of a young author he had barely heard of, saw the title of a play, a poetic drama, 
dance before his eyes and drop the paper, sick, disgusted. It was true then. She was a game. It was not the manner, but the matter she mistrusted. Grannis turned to the servant, who seemed to be purposely lingering. I shan't need you this evening, Flynn. I'll lock up myself. He fancied the man's acquiescence implied surprise. What was going on, Flynn seemed to wonder, that Mr. Grannis should want him out of the way. Probably he would find a pretext for coming back to see. Grannis suddenly felt himself enveloped in a network of espionage. As the door closed, he threw himself into an armchair and leaned forward to take a light from H.M.'s cigar. Tell me about Mrs. Ashgrove, he said, seeming to himself to speak stiffly, as if his lips were cracked. Mrs. Ashgrove, well, there's not much to tell. And you couldn't if there were, Grannis smiled. Probably not. As a matter of fact, she wanted my advice about her choice of counsel. There was nothing especially confidential in our talk. And what's your impression, now you've seen her? My impression is, very distinctly, that nothing will ever be known. Ah, Grannis murmured, puffing at his cigar. I'm more and more convinced that whoever poisoned Ashgrove knew his business and will consequently never be found out. That's a capital cigar you've given me. You like it? I get them over from Cuba. Grannis examined his own reflectively. Then you believe in the theory that the clever criminals never are caught. Of course I do. Look about you. Look back for the last dozen years. None of the big murder problems are ever solved. The lawyer ruminated behind his blue cloud. Why take the instance in your own family? I'd forgotten I had an illustration at hand. Take old Joseph Lenman's murder. Do you suppose that will ever be explained? As the words dropped from H.M.'s lips, his host looked back slowly about the library, and every object in it stared back at him with a stale, inescapable familiarity. How sick he was of looking at that room. It was as dull as the face of a wife one has wearied of. He cleared his throat slowly. Then he turned his head to the lawyer and said, I could explain the Lenman murder myself. Achim's eye kindled. He shared Grannis's interest in criminal cases. By Joe, you've had a theory all this time. It's odd you never mentioned it. Go ahead and tell me. There are certain features in the Lenman case not unlike this Ashgrove affair. 
and your idea may be a help. Grannis paused, and his eye reverted instinctively to the table drawer in which the revolver and the manuscript lay side by side. What if he were to try another appeal to Rose Melrose? Then he looked at the notes and bills on the table and the horror of taking up again the lifeless routine of life, of performing the same automatic gestures another day, displaced his fleeting vision. I haven't a theory. I know who murdered Joseph Lenman. Acham settled himself comfortably in his chair, prepared for enjoyment. You know? Well, who did? He laughed. I did, said Grannis, rising. He stood before Acham, and the lawyer lay back staring up at him. Then he broke into another laugh. Why, this is glorious. You murdered him, did you? To inherit his money, I suppose. Better and better. Go on, my boy. Unbosom yourself. Tell me all about it. Confession is good for the soul. Grannis waited till the lawyer had shaken the last peal of laughter from his throat. Then he repeated doggedly, I murdered him. The two men looked at each other for a long moment, and this time, Achim did not laugh. Grannis, I murdered him, to get his money, as you say. There was another pause, and Grannis, with a vague, underlying sense of amusement, saw his guest look change from pleasantry to apprehension. What's the joke, my dear fellow? I fail to see. It's not a joke. It's the truth. I murdered him. He had spoken painfully at first, as if there were a knot in his throat. But each time he repeated the words, he found they were easier to say. Achim laid down his extinct cigar. What's the matter? Aren't you well? What on earth are you driving at? I'm perfectly well. But I murdered my cousin, Joseph Lenman, and I want it known that I murdered him. You want it known? Yes. That's why I sent for you. I'm sick of living, and when I try to go, I funk it. He spoke quite naturally now, as if the knot in his throat had been untied. Good Lord, good Lord, the lawyer gasped. But I suppose, Grannis continued, there's no doubt this would be murder in the first degree. I'm sure of the chair if I own up. Achim drew a long breath, then he said slowly, Sit down, Grannis. Let's talk. Chapter 2 
Grannis told his story simply, connectedly. He began by a quick survey of his early years, the years of drudgery and privation. His father, a charming man who could never say no, had so signally failed to say it on certain essential occasions that when he died, he left an illegitimate family and a mortgaged estate. His lawful kin found themselves hanging over a gulf of debt, and young Grannis, to support his mother and sister, had to leave Harvard and bury himself at 18 in a broker's office. He loathed his work, and he was always poor, always worried and in ill health. A few years later, his mother died, but his sister and an effectual neurasthenic remained on his hands. His own health gave out, and he had to go away for six months and work harder than ever when he came back. He had no knack for business, no head for figures, no dimmest insight into the mysteries of commerce. He wanted to travel and write. Those were his inmost longings. And as the years dragged on and he neared middle age without making any more money or acquiring any firmer health, a sick despair possessed him. He tried writing, but he always came home from the office so tired that his brain could not work. For half the year, he did not reach his dim, uptone flat till after dark, and could only brush up for dinner, and afterward lie on the lounge with his pipe, while his sister droned through the evening paper. Sometimes he spent an evening at the theater, or he dined out, or more rarely strayed off with an acquaintance or two in quest of what is known as pleasure. And in the summer, when he and Kay went to the seaside for a month, he dozed through the days in utter weariness. Once he fell in love with a charming girl, but what had he to offer her in God's name? She seemed to like him, and in common decency, he had to drop out of the running. Apparently no one replaced him, for she never married, but grew stoutish, grayish, philanthropic. Yet how sweet she had been when he had first kissed her. One more wasted life, he reflected. But the stage had always been his master passion. He would have sold his soul for the time and freedom to write plays. It was in him. He could not remember when it had not been his deepest seated instinct. As the years passed, it became a morbid, a relentless obsession. Yet with every year, the material conditions were more and more against it. He felt himself growing middle-aged, and he watched the reflection of the process in his sister's wasted face. At eighteen, she had been pretty, and as full of enthusiasm as he. 
Now she was sour, trivial, insignificant. She had missed her chance on life. And she had no resources, poor creature, was fashioned simply for the primitive function she had been denied the chance to fulfill. It exasperated him to think of it, and to reflect that even now, a little travel, a little health, a little money might transform her, make her young and desirable. The chief fruit of his experience was that there is no such fixed state as age or youth. There is only health as against sickness, wealth as against poverty, and age or youth as the outcome of the lot one draws. At this point in his narrative, Grannis stood up and went to lean against the mantelpiece, looking down at Achim, who had not moved from his seat or changed his attitude of rigid, fascinated attention. Then came the summer when we went to Renfield to be near old Lenman, my mother's cousin, as you know. Some of the family always mounted guard over him, generally a niece or so. That year they were all scattered, and one of the nieces offered to lend us her cottage if we'd relieve her of duty for two months. It was a nuisance for me, of course, for Renfield is two hours from town. But my mother, who was a slave to family observances, had always been good to the old man. So it was natural we should be called on. Then there was the saving of rent and the good air for Kate. So we went. You never knew Joseph Lenman. Well, picture to yourself an amoeba or some primitive organism of that sort under a titan's microscope. He was large, undifferentiated, inert. Since I could remember him, he had done nothing but take his temperature and read the churchman. Oh, and cultivate melons. That was his hobby. Not vulgar, out-of-door melons. His were grown under glass. He had miles of it at Renfield. His big kitchen garden was surrounded by blinking battalions of greenhouses. And in nearly all of them, melons were grown. Early melons and late French, English, domestic. Dwarf melons and monsters. Every shape, color, and variety. They were petted and nursed like children. A staff of trained attendants waited on them. I'm not sure they didn't have a doctor to take their temperature. At any rate, the place was full of thermometers, and they didn't sprawl on the ground like ordinary melons. They were trained against the glass like nectarines, and each melon hung in a net which sustained its weight and left it free on all sides to the sun and air. It used to strike me sometimes that old Lenman was just like one of his own melons, a pale, fleshed English kind. His life, apathetic and motionless, hung in a net of gold, 
in an equable, warm, ventilated atmosphere, high above sordid earthly worries. The cardinal rule of his existence was not to let himself be worried. I remember his advising me to try it myself. One day when I spoke to him about Kate's bad health and her need of a change. I never let myself worry, he said complacently. It's the worst thing for the liver. And you look to me as if you had a liver. Take my advice and be cheerful. You'll make yourself happier and others too. And all I had to do was to write a check and send the poor girl off for a holiday. The hardest part of it was that the money half belonged to us already. The old skinflint only had it for life, in trust for us and the others. But his life was a good deal sounder than mine or Kate's, and one could picture him taking extra care of it for the joke of keeping us waiting. I always felt that the sight of our hungry eyes was a tonic to him. Well, I tried to see if I couldn't reach him through his vanity. I flattered him, feigned a passionate interest in his melons. And he was taken in, and used to discourse on them by the hour. On fine days he was driven to the greenhouses in his pony chair and waddled through them, prodding and leering at the fruit like a fat Turk in his seriglio. When he bragged to me of the expense of growing them, I was reminded of a hideous old Lothario bragging of what his pleasures cost. And the resemblance was completed by the fact that he couldn't eat as much as a mouthful of his melons, had lived for years on buttermilk and toast. But after all, it's my only hobby. Why shouldn't I indulge it, he said sentimentally, as if I had ever been able to indulge any of mine. On the keep of those melons, Kate and I could have lived like gods. One day, Toward the end of summer, when Kate was too unwell to drag herself up to the big house, she asked me to go and spend the afternoon with Cousin Joseph. It was a lovely, soft September afternoon, a day to lie under a Roman stone pine with one's eyes on the sky and let the cosmic harmonies rush through one. Perhaps the vision was suggested by the fact that, as I entered Cousin Joseph's hideous black walnut library, I passed one of the undergardeners, a handsome, full-throated Italian, who dashed out in such a hurry that he nearly knocked me down. I remember thinking it queer that the fellow, whom I had often seen about the Madeline houses, did not bow to me, or even seem to see me. Cousin Joseph sat in his usual seat, behind the darkened windows, his fat hands folded on his protuberant waistcoat, the last number of the churchman at his elbow, and near it on a huge dish of fat melon, 
the fattest melon I'd ever seen. As I looked at it, I pictured the ecstasy of contemplation from which I must have roused him and congratulated myself on finding him in such a mood since I had made up my mind to ask him a favor. Then I noticed that his face, instead of looking as calm as an eggshell, was distorted and whimpering, and without stopping to greet me, he pointed passionately to the melon. Look at it, look at it. Did you ever see such a beauty? Such firmness, roundness, such delicious smoothness to the touch. It was as if he had said she instead of it. And when he put out his senile hand and touched the melon, I positively had to look the other way. Then he told me what had happened. The Italian undergardener, who had been specially recommended for the melon houses, though it was against my cousin's principles to employ a papist, had been assigned to the care of the monster for it had revealed itself early in its existence as destined to become a monster, to surpass its plumpest, pulpiest sisters, carry off prizes at agricultural shows, and be photographed and celebrated in every gardening paper in the land. The Italian had done well, seemed to have a sense of responsibility, and that very morning, he had been ordered to pick the melon, which was to be shown next day at the county fair, and to bring it in for Mr. Lenman to gaze on its blonde virginity. But in picking it, what had the damned scoundrel done but drop it? Drop it crash on the sharp spout of a watering pot, so that it received a deep gash in its firm, pale rotundity, and was henceforth but a bruised, ruined, fallen melon. The old man's rage was fearful in its impotence. He shook, spluttered, and strangled with it. He had just had the Italian up and had sacked on the spot, without wages or character, had threatened to have him arrested if he was ever caught prowling about Renfield. By God, and I'll do it. I'll write to Washington. I'll have the pauper scoundrel deported. I'll show him what money can do. As likely as not there was some murderous black hand business under him, it would be found that the fellow was a member of a gang. He meant to have the police look into it, and then he grew frightened at his own excitement. But I must calm myself, he said. He took his temperature, rang for his drops, and turned to the churchman. He had been reading an article on Nestorianism when the melon was brought in. He asked me to go on with it, and I read to him for an hour in the dim, close room with a fat fly buzzing stealthily about the fallen melon. All the while, one phrase of the old man's buzzed in my brain like the fly about the melon. 
I'll show him what money can do. Good heaven, if I could but show the old man, if I could make him see his power of giving happiness as a new outlet for his monstrous egotism. I tried to tell him something about my situation and Kate's, spoke of my ill health, my unsuccessful drudgery, my longing to write, to make myself a name. I stammered out an entreaty for a loan. I can guarantee to repay you, sir. I have a half-written play as security. I shall never forget his glassy stare. His face had grown as smooth as an eggshell again. His eyes peered over his fat cheeks like sentinels over a slippery rampart. A half-written play. A play of yours as security. He looked at me almost fearfully, as if detecting the first symptoms of insanity. Do you understand anything of business? He inquired mildly. I laughed and answered, no, not much. He leaned back with closed lids. All this excitement has been too much for me, he said. If you'll excuse me, I'll prepare for my nap. And I stumbled out of the room, blindly, like the Italian. Grannis moved away from the mantelpiece and walked across to the tray set out with decanters and soda water. He poured himself a tall glass of soda water, emptied it, and glanced at H.M.'s dead cigar. Better light another, he suggested. The lawyer shook his head, and Grannis went on with his tale. He told of his mounting obsession, how the murderous impulse had waked in him on the instant of his cousin's refusal, and he had muttered to himself, By God, if you won't, I'll make you. He spoke more tranquilly as the narrative proceeded, as though his rage had died down once the resolve to act on it was taken. He applied his whole mind to the question of how the old man was to be disposed of, but no definite project presented itself. He simply waited for inspiration. Grannis and his sister moved to town a day or two after the incident of the melon, but the cousins, who had returned, kept them informed of the old man's condition. One day, about three weeks later, Grannis, on getting home, found Kate excited over a report from Renfield. The Italian had been there again, and somehow slipped into the house, made his way up to the library, and used threatening language. The housekeeper found Cousin Joseph gasping, the whites of his eyes showing something awful. A doctor was sent for, and the attack warded off, and the police had ordered the Italian from the neighborhood. But Cousin Joseph thereafter languished, had nerves, and lost his taste for toast and buttermilk. 
The doctor called in a colleague, and the consultation amused and excited the old man. He became once more an important figure. The medical men reassured the family, too completely, and to the patient they recommended a more varied diet, advised him to take whatever tempted him. And so one day, tremulously, prayerfully, he decided on a tiny bit of melon. It was brought up with ceremony and consumed in the presence of the housekeeper and a hovering cousin. Twenty minutes later, he was dead. But you remember the circumstances, Grannis went on. How suspicion turned at once on the Italian. In spite of the hint the police had given him, he had been hanging about the house since the scene. It was said that he had tender relations with the kitchen maid, and the rest seemed easy to explain. But when they looked round to ask him for the explanation, he was gone. Gone clean out of sight. He had been warned to leave Renfield, and he had taken the warning so to heart that no one ever laid eyes on him again. Grannis paused. He had dropped into a chair opposite the lawyer's, and he had sat for a moment, his head thrown back, looking about the familiar room. Everything in it had grown grimacing and alien and each strange, insistent object seemed craning forward from its place to hear him. It was I who put the stuff in the melon, he said, and I don't want you to think I'm sorry for it. This isn't remorse, understand. I'm glad the old skinflint is dead. I'm glad the others have their money. But mine's no use to me anymore. My sister married miserably and died, and I've never had what I wanted. H.M. continued to stare. Then he said, What on earth was your object then? Why, to get what I wanted. What I fancied was in reach. I wanted change, rest, life for both of us wanted above all for myself the chance to write. Got back my health and came home to tie myself up to my work. And I've slaved at it steadily for ten years without reward, without the most distant hope of success. Nobody will look at my stuff. And now I'm fifty, and I'm beaten, and I know it. His chin dropped forward on his breast. I want to chuck the whole business, he ended. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.